You are listening to As a Woman, episode 112, Endocrinology with Dr. Arthi Thangudu. Dr. Arthi is a highly skilled, triple board certified physician in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. Today, we are talking all about the endocrine system and what you need to know about how your body works. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I am Dr. Natalie Crawford, fertility physician and your host. As always, thank you for being here. I love this podcast so much. I'm so proud of the place that it has become. And I'm super excited to talk to you about the endocrine system today. As you know, I am a reproductive endocrinologist. That means all the reproductive hormones and infertility. That's my specialty. I did three years of training in REI. That's a fellowship after four years of OBGYN. And to make matters even interesting, I did a year of emergency medicine before I realized that women's health was my true passion and switched to OBGYN. But today we are coming at things from the medical endocrine side, and I'm so excited to have you here today. We are going to be talking to Dr. Arthi Thangudu. She is fabulous. She is triple board certified in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. She got her bachelor's degree in journalism from Northwestern. She received her medical degree from UT Health Science Center in San Antonio, did an intern year at Baylor, her residency in internal medicine and fellowship in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. And that was all at Tulane. She's board certified in internal medicine, endocrinology, diabetes, metabolism, and lifestyle medicine. She previously worked at a really busy traditional endocrinology practice, But then she saw the light, decided to leave and be her own boss, and she started her own practice, Complete Medicine. We will talk some about that, but it is person-centered and an involved approach to patient care. She loves taking care of patients, making them empowered with education for their own journeys, and I am honored to call her a friend and so excited to have her here today. Arthi, I am so honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on the As A Woman podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. So I've already told everybody a little bit about the difference in being a medical endocrinologist, what you are, and a reproductive endocrinologist, what I am. The truth is, I like to think of us both as the real hormone experts out there, and we manage different things at different times of your life. So I'm really excited to dive down into a little bit more of the medical endocrinology with you today because... I work hand in hand with a lot of endocrinologists here to take care of some of our patients who are having reproductive problems. But I'd love you to start by telling everybody how you ended up in endocrinology to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up with a bunch of metabolic disease all around me, and I didn't realize that it was shaping my future life and career decisions. Um, When I was a kid, I, um, my grandparents lived with me. I had like a multi-generational family and my grandfather had diabetes. So I grew up pricking his finger and kind of trying to tell him what to eat and what not to eat. And um, we have a lot of heart disease in my family. My dad actually had a heart attack when he was 37 and I was three. 
Yeah. And so um, that, of course, shaped my life. He he didn't die. <laughs> Thankfully, he's still with us today, very much so. Um, but all of this kind of led me on my pathway in medicine. Um, I really thought about being a doctor who could care for my community. And uh, my mom's actually an ophthalmologist. And I always, you know, thought I would be like my mom, a surgical subspecialist. And um, then as I, I grew up, I really was interested in lots of different things and um, still managed to make my way to medicine. But I actually have a degree in journalism from Northwestern and did a lot of different things um, and realized that I really loved communication. And so I went to medical school, went into the OR and realized I don't belong here. <laughs> that's that's uh, something you know or you don't know, right? It totally is. I was just like, this is not my place. And I wanted the patients to wake up. And I was like, you know, I, I didn't want to be operating on them because I wanted to talk to them. And so I really found myself flourishing on my internal medicine rotations. Um, and I, as I was looking through specialties, I just fell in love with endocrine. I loved um, talking to people, talking about their lives and getting to know them in these really meaningful ways, at least meaningful to me and making an impact on them long-term and um, had some really, really great mentors. And and yeah, that's how I landed here. I love it. I The endocrine system, I love it so much. It's complex, but it's like a puzzle. It makes a lot of sense. So it's one of those things, as a medical student even, it's really complicated and kind of overwhelming. And I know for a non-medical person, it's very overwhelming also. But when we get to the point and you understand it, it's like a big puzzle in my brain that all the pieces really fit together. And part of how I view my job, and I know you view yours the same way, is trying to help other people understand that puzzle so that it's not just we're throwing medications at everything or giving you these willy-nilly recommendations. We're really trying to help you understand how your body can function the best and make choices along that way. When you left fellowship, you went to a really busy practice. Was that your, right? That was your first job out of fellowship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I joined a really, really big private practice, endocrinology practice, um, right out of fellowship. It was kind of one of those dream jobs. You think that you're going to do your whole life and and I got it. And I was so excited about it. And I learned so much there because it's actually the busiest private practice in the country. Oh my God, same. (laughs) And so when when you're graduating from fellowship, you're like, wow, that's like the dream. But then when you actually are in it, um, and for me anyone who follows me on social or knows me knows that I like truly just love my patients. I love what I do. And I really love relationship-based medicine and, and caring for people more than, you know, being someone who prescribes just medications. Right. And so in that busy practice, I got so much experience. I really, really value that coming right out of training because all of us who have been through medical training know that the real fellowship is that first few years in practice. Yes, it's so true. It's like medicine's still somewhat an apprenticeship. You can only learn what you're exposed to. And sometimes you have to be exposed to the real stuff after training that you don't really Mm -hmm. see in an academic center all the time. 
Yeah. And like just having that ability to make decisions on your own without someone overseeing you, that that's really what makes you go back and read the guidelines over and over and over again, because you're so afraid to make a mistake and you don't have someone else, you know, above you making sure that you don't make a mistake. So for that, I'm, I'm super grateful for having that experience and just having patients pouring into my office. Um, but after a while, I realized that my place in, in medicine was really having relationships with my patients. And so I ultimately left after a couple of years to create a more patient-centered practice that I felt like my patients would thrive more and I would thrive more in. Okay, this is fascinating and I don't want you to gloss over it because you're acting like, oh, I just love to create this other practice that would be better. But that's a huge step. And in medicine, there's off, there's a lot of barriers against this sometimes and there's a lot of doubt and people will say, oh, that's not the traditional pathway for a woman to go start her own practice that's a different model. Did you, was this something you'd always thought about or did this just come to you as you were in training? Is this something that you said, I'm going to do this and you started doing it right away or did this build over time? Like this decision is huge and I've always been such an admiration of you for making this choice relatively early on in your career. Oh, thank you. So um, it was a process for sure. You know, I, in med school, my, my med school best friends will be like, oh yeah, I remember you used to talk about this like women's health clinic that you were um, thinking about opening and that I actually wanted to do REI before I realized that I didn't belong in the <laughs> OR. In the OR. And so, um, and that's what my research was in, in, in medical school. And so I had kind of had this thought, but nothing too serious. And then um, when I was in practice, I just felt like there had to be a better way. You know, I would have patients um, coming in, they would have long wait times, they would be happy when they saw me, but they were so unhappy with the entire structure of medical outpatient medicine or medicine in general, but, you know, the wait times, not being able to get through, not being able to get their prescriptions filled, not having adequate access to their doctor. And I kind of looked around and I was like, this, this system is not going to fix itself. I can either be like, you know, a cog in the wheel and just keep doing this, or I'm going to have to change my own system or, Otherwise, this is, I looked, I kind of looked around and I was like, or I'm going to turn into, you know, the people that I saw 20 years ahead of me. And, and that's not really what I saw for myself. And at the same time, I'm a mom. I have two little kids. My husband's an ICU doctor. He has a really crazy, hectic schedule. Um, and my son at the time was just born. He wasn't thriving. And I just knew that this was not going to work for my life long-term for the life that I saw for myself and for my patients. And so I really had to make a change and I had a couple of options. One was to be a stay-at-home mom after a million years of training. And um, I just didn't want that for myself. I I really love what I do. And I felt like I had just gotten out of training. I didn't want to quit at that point. Just give it all up right away. Exactly. And um, my other option was to find another way. And so I I just 
decided, well, I've got to make a change. I have to do something and let's see if any patients want to join me on this fun (laughs) adventure that I'm taking. And I was very fortunate that, you know, I, I had some belief in myself because, um, Pretty soon after I joined my big practice, I had, you know, five, 10 patients changing physicians over to me um, from, from other, other physicians in the group. And so I was like, okay, I have something here. And patients would like talk to each other in the waiting room. And then they were supposed to see another doctor. And then somehow they'd get added onto my schedule because ah. another patient, because they spent like three hours in the waiting room, they had time to talk to, to each chat other. to each other. And, and they understood <laughs> You offered something a little different, right? A different approach. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. 
No Lime Shady Business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Mm-hmm. And so I had people, I had, you know, um, people wanting to see me, which was, which was kind of, you know, as a young woman, like I'm a tiny person, a young woman of color, like that people were choosing to see over the more typical gray haired um, old man man doctor. And I was like, okay, well, people are looking for something different. And so just kind of reading the market a little bit, I was like, you know, maybe I have something to offer here that other people don't or that, um, that, you know, is specific to me that I can offer people. And then I also started looking at people's co-pays. So um, when we're in training, we don't learn anything about the finances of medicine. Nothing. Not a, not a thing at not all. Not a thing. And sometimes the things that we think are true are totally not true. Like, for example, there are some insurances that don't even pay for a, a person to see a specialist. Like, not they don't pay at all until maybe their entire deductible is met or um, and they're only specific specialists. So people were coming to see me and my partners for like a 10, 15, sometimes three, five minute appointment and paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for that. And then on top of it, the labs and all of this stuff. So I started doing some research and I was like, I can create a membership based model with transparent pricing, tell people what they're going to pay up front and save them like thousands of dollars and also give them better service. And so... I, I mean, I love this part so much. And I think there's a lot of confusion about different practice models, you know, membership based off options, direct care, concierge medicine. And I think people would love it if you want to clear up a little bit of what what else all out there if you start looking at, let's say, non-traditional options versus just where your insurance may be sending you. Yeah. So I think it's important for everybody to to look out for themselves in a way in, in the world of healthcare because um, sometimes insurance isn't best. Um, and by best, I mean quality of service and also cost wise. And so my practice is called is direct care. And so it has some crossover with concierge medicine, but there's some kind of key distinguishing parts. So in concierge medicine, which has been around for a really long time, <clears throat> basically you pay a retainer to keep that physician as your doctor but that clinic also bills your insurance. So they bill your office visit, any procedures they do. They also bill your insurance for labs, all of that stuff. So there's really no cost savings associated with it directly, except that you're probably going to get better care and better access to your doctor, which in the long term could lead to cost savings. Um, but there's no like upfront cost savings. Now, direct care is different from concierge medicine in that we don't bill any insurance. So we have a monthly membership fee, which is similar to like a concierge doctor's um, retainer, 
but we don't bill insurance for anything. And the reason that that's beneficial to both me and my patients is that enables us to keep costs lower because paying for billing, medical right. billing is another cost to your doctor. It's like a whole gets- body or team, depending on what you do. Exactly. And so that cost gets translated to the patients who are having their billing done that way. So this is much more straightforward. And then also I have negotiated discounted lab pricing and imaging pricing for my patients. So if, and my patients, my, my contracted rates are with LabCorp. So for example, if my patient gets a CMP, a TSH, all of these labs, I can say, hey, the cash price is this. It's typically about 10 times cheaper with my cash pricing than it is with most people's insurance. If it's cheaper with me than your insurance, use me. If not, use your insurance. You yeah, know, who either cares? way is fine. Either one but, works. But at least it, it gets people to recognize, oh, I actually have options here. Like there, there is a way for me to find out which is cheaper. And I'll tell you, 99% of my patients use my pricing because it's so much cheaper than insurance. And so people actually end up saving as much as they spend on the membership that they, you know, my physician fees in, in labs. It's so interesting. And we could do the whole podcast talking about practice models and insurance, but we'll just talk about this one point before we pivot to some endocrine topics. Often people feel very married to their insurance company. Oh, my insurance company says I have to go here or I have to go here to get the best price. And it's not always actually the best price. And it's not always and often not the best level of care if they're directing you to go somewhere. That is your decision to make. But I always tell people, explore all your options. Like for us in IVF, some places oh, they'll take your insurance, but insurance excludes half of IVF anyway. So you're not really saving money when you put all these different things together. And the drugs, if you self-bought your IVF drugs, it costs about a third is what your insurance company is going to charge you for them. So it's like you go through your benefit a lot faster. It's just Mm -hmm. important to understand that insurance companies overall don't usually put the patient at the top of their pyramid of goals and they put Mm -hmm. money. And so that is translated often into the decisions they force you into. So as you said, I love what you said, Arthi. Be an advocate for yourself. Understand what your options are so that there is transparency and you can choose what practice, no matter what we're talking about, is going to fit you the best and give you the best care. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe so much in the cash model that even for me and my kids, um, actually my husband too is on my insurance or insurance in quotes, um, we use a cost share system called Sidera and I pay cash for everything and it saves me about $10,000 a year in premiums. And so since I'm saving that much, I don't really, if I have to take my kid to the pediatrician and pay $150, it doesn't really bother me because I saved $1,400 in a premium that month. Right. So, so it's just kind of shifting your mindset about... Um, how you think about healthcare and how you think about paying for it. I love it. So let's shift gears into a few endocrine topics. So let's start with yours and my favorite. That probably our biggest overlap in practice is going to be the thyroid. Um, I see so many people coming in blaming their thyroid. Oh, my thyroid must be off. Oh, it's my thyroid. And granted, a lot of people do actually have thyroid abnormalities. 
Is this a big part of your practice, taking care of patients with thyroid disease? And what do you want people to know about it? Yeah, absolutely. So after diabetes, thyroid is definitely the number two um, organ that I deal with. Um, And I think, you know, as physicians in endocrinology and dealing with hormones, sometimes we, we get frustrated because yes, everybody does kind of want to blame their thyroid for a lot of these nonspecific symptoms, but also there's a lot of information about the thyroid out there. And so if you're doing a Google search, I mean, you can't really blame people for being confused about the thyroid because there's tons of non-evidence-based providers putting a lot of information out there that can be really, really confusing. Um, And so I always try to step back and remember like, okay, it's confusing to be a patient. It's really hard. It's confusing for physicians. I mean, I had a physician patient who's a cardiologist um, totally confused about his thyroid and he has hypothyroidism. And so it's, it's confusing for even people with a really high education level. Um, yeah. Give an overview. So give the couple minutes spiel about thyroid hormones. Like when you check your thyroid hormones, what are we checking and how do they interact? Because I think one of the most confusing things is that we check a hormone not made by the thyroid to see how the thyroid is functioning, right? We're looking at how is your brain interpreting your thyroid levels. And because that is opposite of what we call the diseases, I see people confused on this all the time. So I'd love to hear your take on the brief explanation about thyroid hormones and what we test. Yeah. So yeah, that is super confusing. It's like we use backwards numbers to diagnose hypo and hyperthyroidism. So so the thyroid is this beautiful butterfly-shaped gland in your neck that produces... I love you. <laughs> I, like it's I beautiful butterfly-shaped. It it's like it's me the and the ovaries. <laughs> yeah. It's the most beautiful gland in the body from my perspective. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's up for debate. So, so it secretes thyroid hormones, um, T4 that peripherally gets converted to T3. But then in your brain, there is a small but mighty gland called the pituitary gland. And I say it's like me because it's small but mighty. (laughs) And it it secretes something called TSH, um, uh, thyroid stimulating hormone. And it does just that. The the pituitary stimulates the thyroid using TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, to make thyroid hormones. So when the thyroid is broken, for example, due to hypothyroidism from Hashimoto's, which is the most common thyroid disease that we see. Um, And that's an autoimmune disease where there are antibodies called thyroid peroxidase antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies that attack the thyroid until eventually it doesn't function to make those thyroid hormones anymore. The brain starts to scream at the thyroid because it senses that there's not enough thyroid hormone around. So it screams with its loud voice of TSH to try to stimulate the thyroid, but the thyroid isn't listening because it's broken. And so TSH gets higher and higher and higher, but the thyroid hormone is still low. And that's when we need synthetic thyroid hormone supplementation. So in for you science people out there, it's a negative feedback loop. Um, but for everybody else, basically the thyroid is controlled by the brain. And that's the hormone we check because it is the most sensitive lab test that we have for thyroid hormones. Now, 
people say, well, why don't you check free T3? Why don't you care about the thyroid direct hormones? And it's not that I don't care about them. It's just the assays. So if I had a wonderful commercially available free T3 assay available that I could send my patients to LabCorp and get for a reasonable price, I would totally be all about getting that. But I don't at this time. TSH is the most sensitive lab test that we have. Now, there are T, free T3 assays available in the lab that we can do in you know research experiments and stuff, but they're not available to everyone. So that's why we rely so heavily on the TSH. I love that explanation. So when we check TSH, it's the opposite of what's going on with your thyroid. So when TSH is high, it's because the thyroid is broken and not listening. Therefore, that's hypothyroid, thyroid's making low thyroid hormones. And on the opposite, when the thyroid gland is really overactive and too excited, it's overproducing, then your brain has low TSH because it's saying, hey, don't send out any, we've got enough, stop production. But the thyroid gland is not listening. And so that's one of the number one questions I get is, but the TSH and people don't really understand just because nobody was able maybe to explain it in a way that makes sense. And I love how you put it. I have a question about Hashimoto. So I get asked all the time. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have some general recommendations for people who have Hashimoto's or autoimmune disease. Is there there anything lifestyle-wise you recommend besides getting on thyroid hormone? We're going to say that's a, a yes. You're going to start your thyroid hormone because your brain is telling us you need it. But are there other changes that you feel like help certain people who have autoimmune disease? So I think generally a healthful lifestyle is is beneficial. I know you and I both um, recommend plant-focused or plant-forward diets. And so I think that's a great way. Exercise, you know, stress management, um, good sleep, all those things. Now, is there a specific diet that is evidence-based and recommended for Hashimoto's? No. Will you find a million if you ask Google? Yes. <laughs> and so there's a few things that people have questions about all the time, like selenium. So selenium is used for thyroid hormone synthesis, but do you need to take a selenium supplement? Not really. Usually we get sufficient amounts in our diet. If you really want to boost your selenium, you could eat like five Brazil nuts a month and you get sufficient selenium for for your thyroid. Also, people ask about iodine all the time. Most of us are getting sufficient iodine from iodized salt, and you don't need that much to to get sufficient iodine. And fruits and veggies grown in the US have iodine in them. Most of us don't need an iodine supplement unless we're pregnant. Um, And that's in, in most prenatal vitamins. And we definitely don't need whopping doses because whopping doses can unpredictably affect the thyroid and lead to profound hyper or hypothyroidism. So um, if there's a supplement that says thyroid supplement and it has like a thousand micrograms of iodine, just run as far away from it as you can. (laughs) Just run away. (laughs) And then um, other common things are how does soy affect the thyroid? So soy... um, Soy can impair the absorption of thyroid hormone supplementation. So if you are on a high soy diet and you are also on thyroid hormone supplementation, you might need a higher dose than you would if you weren't on a high high soy diet, but it doesn't like make your hypothyroidism worse. Um, and then another big thing is gluten. People talk about gluten all the time. All the time. Thyroid. 
So there is no data to say that if you have Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, you need to avoid gluten. Now, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease. And if you have one autoimmune disease, you're more likely to have another. And celiac disease is an autoimmune disease where you are gluten intolerant. So if you have Hashimoto's and celiac, then yes, you should avoid gluten. If you eat gluten and you feel crummy when you eat gluten, then you should probably also avoid gluten. But just because you have Hashimoto's, that doesn't mean that you should um, take gluten off the table. I love it. Those are the top questions I get asked all the time by people. And I think because thyroid is more, it's pretty prevalent. I mean, there's a lot of people who do have thyroid abnormalities. And in my spectrum, thyroid abnormalities can cause abnormal bleeding, irregular periods, miscarriages. And so it's a hormone that we check all the time in our infertility patients as a screening test to make sure that we are checking the right things. Now, before we go into differences in pregnancy, quick question as far as when do people get their thyroid checked? Is this every year? Should it be every year for some people? Is there a certain age when you start getting it checked? Or what symptoms would somebody have that might make you say you should actually go get checked out for that? Yeah. So symptom, So usually people are checked first when they when they have symptoms. So the symptoms of hypothyroidism can be very nonspecific. So that's why the labs are very important, but common symptoms are fatigue, weight gain, and weight gain from true hypothyroidism is usually on the order of 10% of total body weight. So if you've gained like a hundred pounds in the last year, it's not all (laughs) due to your thyroid. It could be partially due to your thyroid and Usually it's it's water weight from, from hypothyroidism. Um, weight gain, constipation, um, dry skin, dry hair, brittle hair, hair loss around the temporal region, shortening of your eyebrows, um, depressed mood, um, kind of a generalized slowing down of the system is our symptoms consistent with hypothyroidism. Hyperthyroidism is kind of the flip. So anxiety, insomnia, um, heat intolerance, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, um, rapid heart rate, uh, high blood pressure, those kinds of things. So if you're having symptoms like that, it is worthwhile to have your TSH checked. That's the most uh, reliable screening lab. You don't need to have like 40 thyroid tests done if the TSH <laughs> is, is normal. Um, those labs can just be confusing really. Um, and if you do have abnormal thyroid function, the frequency with testing kind of varies. So once you're on a stable regimen for hypothyroidism, like you're on a medication that is stable, um, you should be checked every year at least. And if you have new symptoms now, um, hyperthyroidism on the flip side we usually check a little bit more frequently. And if, you know, there are different types of causes of hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease is the most common. And if that doesn't go into remission after a year, we talk about definitive therapy and getting rid of the thyroid in some way to to keep you safe. 
Okay. So if you have any of those symptoms, a lot of them do kind of sound like pandemic symptoms, but (laughs) I think it's important if you have a change from what your baseline is or something that is not getting better and progressing that you bring it up to your doctor. And as you said, TSH is the best screening test. And so that's the metric by what we use. In my world now, what confuses people a ton is that they could go see you, not tell you that you're trying to get pregnant, just get a little checkup, have a TSH done and it's in the normal range. They come to me and they say, oh, I didn't tell her, but I've been trying to get pregnant for a year and I have infertility and their TSH then is considered too high in my world. And this confuses people all the time. So I'll say the simplest way to put it is that your thyroid gland increases production. It needs to increase production of thyroid hormones by about 30% the moment you get pregnant. And that is really important in the first trimester because a fetus doesn't make any thyroid hormones until at least 11 weeks. So we are relying on mom to have enough thyroid hormone going around to help support the baby's growth. And this is really essential for development of the child and for brain development and a lot of reasons. So if your thyroid is borderline, meaning your TSH is already high, your brain's already telling your thyroid gland to work hard, even if it's in the high end of that normal range, I'm now afraid that the moment you get pregnant and you have a 30% increase in demand, you're not going to be able to keep up because you're already working your thyroid gland at the high end of what it can before it poops out. And so we really like to get a TSH less than 2.5, which is kind of in the middle of the range of what would really be considered normal for anybody who's had infertility, if you're having abnormal bleeding, you're trying to get pregnant. Those are the values we're shooting for. That way, when you get pregnant and you have that increased demand, you're able to accommodate this. And that also means that many people get put on thyroid hormone and it gets actively managed through your pregnancy. So even when you leave me and go to your regular OBGYN, we'll all work together to make sure your thyroid hormone is appropriate in the first trimester, second, third, and postpartum. And some people end up having true Hashimoto's disease that gets diagnosed in this time period and they're on medication forever. Some people, this is just transient. When they're not in the pregnancy stage, they're able to be off medication and then they're fine. But I find that that's really confusing for most people about, well, why did my doctor say this is normal, but you're telling me I need to start a medication? Yeah, I think that is, I'm so, that was a great explanation. And um, I think people do get super confused there. So HCG normally stimulates more thyroid hormone production. So it's normal physiology for a woman when she gets pregnant to make more thyroid hormone. And what, what I think you were trying to say is that we're just trying to make sure that that you get that extra thyroid hormone because we're not 150% sure that your body is going to make that extra thyroid hormone when you get pregnant. So we want to support the pregnancy. And I think us as endocrinologists are totally on board with that. So I think uh, a key piece of this puzzle is if you're trying to get pregnant, tell your endocrinologist. Yes, tell everybody. <laughs> I mean, I think that's actually really important because especially in the infertility population, nobody wants to admit they're having a hard time. So Mm -hmm. perhaps you're seeing your endocrinologist who's been managing your thyroid forever. This literally just happened to me and a patient I'm doing an embryo transfer on really soon and her endocrinologist just adjusted their dose. And typically I want your dose stable before we start this cycle. If you need last minute dose adjustments, I'm not convinced this is the perfect time to go put an embryo in. 
mm-hmm. her endocrinologist did not know she's undergoing IVF and an embryo transfer because mm-hmm. she felt, you know, the shame and the stigma of infertility and didn't bring it up. And this is why it's really important to know that we're all on the same team and we're here to help you. And even though those things may be hard to talk about, it really may impact your medical care. And so mm-hmm. I think it's really essential to have those open communications and tell your doctor if you're undergoing fertility treatments or trying to get pregnant, even if it's not your fertility doctor or your OBGYN, it can matter. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if there is an issue, like, you know, I, I take care of people with gestational diabetes or people with infertility or people um, who just went through fertility treatments, I'm always okay with taking up the phone and calling your doctor to get us on the same page if it doesn't seem like we're on the same page because sometimes it just takes that doctor-to-doctor communication to say, hey, okay, this is what's going on. This was what I was thinking. Okay, this is what I was thinking. And then we can kind of relay a better message to you, our patient, um, to make it less confusing for you. And yeah. for us too. I was like, we're, we're not afraid to talk to each other. So I think that that's always get, get your doctors on the same team because we want to be, but you're the connecting dot. So as, as you said earlier, advocate for yourself. That way we can make sure that everybody's pushing the boat in the same direction and advocating for your needs. Yeah. If we, oh, go ahead. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing about thyroid and pregnancy. So as an endocrinologist, if I know that you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant, um, there are no adverse effects of hyperthyroidism for the most part in pregnancy. So I'm going to, if your OB or your RE is telling us that we need to add thyroid hormone, I will more than likely defer to them on that because the risk of hypo is much more dangerous to the fetus than hyper. So so if you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, you know, err on the side of uh, being on thyroid hormone or increasing your dose. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I would rather have somebody run a little bit hyperthyroid, meaning their TSH is really in that low range as long as they're asymptomatic, because then I do feel 150% confident that they've got enough thyroid hormone circulating around to support their body and that pregnancy the moment that HCG production starts. So if you can tolerate it, we like that because it's a little bit safer and it's not as much wiggle room if you forget one dose or something else like that happens. Yeah. If we switch gears for a moment... I know I don't have you all day. We could just talk forever, but (laughs) diabetes. So I don't really take care of patients with diabetes. Certainly in patients with PCOS or who are overweight and have risk factors, I will screen them to see if they have diabetes. I see a ton of insulin resistance and we talk a lot about lifestyle strategies for that. Talk a lot about metformin, but I send a ton of patients on to medical endocrine to help us with insulin resistance or new diagnosis of diabetes. And I know this is, as you already said, the number one thing that you see and you take care of. So I'm sure you have some pointers for people or thoughts about, especially for that middle of the road, insulin resistant patient who is, if they change nothing, going to likely progress into diabetes. Do you want to tell people what diabetes is and then give us some insulin resistance tips? Yeah. So there are multiple types of diabetes. Um, But I think the one that we deal with most commonly is type 2 diabetes, which is caused by insulin resistance. So I'll talk mostly about that. But of course, we have type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition where the body doesn't produce 
sufficient insulin. And then we have some other, uh, other types of diabetes like Modi's and pancreatogenic diabetes. But um, to keep it simple, we'll talk mostly about type 2. So type 2 diabetes is caused by something called insulin resistance. So what that means is your body, your pancreas, which is an organ in the middle of your abdomen um, that's responsible for lots of things, <laughs> but producing insulin to combat your blood sugar from getting too high is one of the major roles of the, the pancreas. So basically the pancreas is working really hard to produce insulin, but your body is not processing that insulin properly and not utilizing it properly to do the things that it's supposed to do. And oftentimes that's due to excess fat in the diet or excess body fat or a combination of both. And there's also other factors like PCOS causes it, genetic factors, um, environmental factors, all kinds of things. But, but excessive fat that you eat or that you wear are, are major causes of insulin resistance. <clears throat> and so what insulin normally does is when the blood sugar gets high, it opens up a door and the blood sugar gets pushed into the muscles or the cells to be used as, uh, as energy. Now, when we're resistant to insulin, the sugar gets stuck. It gets stuck in the bloodstream and the body can't use, use it properly for energy and the sugar starts to rise and we end up with prediabetes um, or diabetes. <clears throat> and the problem with this is then in response, the insulin starts getting higher and higher and higher. The insulin level starts getting higher and higher and higher. And while insulin is a very necessary hormone in normal levels, when it gets too high, it makes us gain more, more weight. So we get into this vicious cycle of insulin resistance, high insulin levels, weight gain, worsen insulin resistance. And we really need to take steps in those scenarios to make it stop and move our bodies from insulin resistant to more insulin sensitive. Um, and so there's a few ways that I recommend my patients, but really everybody, everybody at, in their life can start thinking about this um, because it's never really too early and it's never too late to start thinking about, you know, your chronic metabolic health. And so one thing of course is diet. So making sure you're not getting excessive calories, one, but um, I recommend a plant-forward diet. So a diet that's rich in fruits, veggies, whole grains, legumes, and low in processed foods, excess saturated fat. Um, but I'm, I, I like to say that, yes, this is a diet that I recommend, but I'm a dietary agnostic. Like I don't want to propose a diet to people that isn't going to work for them. So right. Whatever gets you in the right direction, if you're eating McDonald's every day, then, you know, not eating McDonald's one day a week is progress for you, you know? And so um, I don't want it, it can be very off-putting sometimes to say you have to eat plants only to somebody who is like a cattle rancher, right? But if we can say, and I actually have patients that are like farmers, you know, they, right. they, we live in Texas, right? And so, but what we can say is, yes, you can have meat as maybe your side dish or, you know, have a salad with it, you know, just making progress to be having to have a more healthful diet is what it's about. It's not I, about, yeah, I say the same thing. I say, 
you know, plant focused, plant forward, but maybe it's meatless Monday, or maybe you pick one meal at least during the day that that meal doesn't have meat in it. So you're being forced to include more fruits and vegetables because one thing that happens, and I know I'll keep going, is that when people eat a lot of meat, they're not eating a lot of vegetables. And they, there's an inverse correlation because they're getting full on the meat and that saturated fat. And then they're not consuming those vitamin and nutrient dense vegetables as much, at least most of my patients who eat a lot of meat. That's what I'm seeing in them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you don't have to completely turn your life around overnight to see great leaps and bounds in your metabolic health. I mean, I have patients who I literally have had patients come off a hundred units of insulin in three days. That's fabulous. It's like, it's amazing how just kind of reframing the way you think about food. And I would, most of my patients aren't a hundred percent vegan. I mean, most of them are just eating better than they were before. And so it's really possible to make huge leaps in your metabolic health with some baby steps, just putting one foot in front of the other every day in the way of diet. And then another thing that really improves insulin sensitivity is exercise. So there was one study um, in insulin resistant adults um, where one bout of 45 minutes on the elliptical immediately improved their insulin sensitivity. And I see this in my patients with diabetes on continuous glucose monitors all the time. Like when they exercise, all of a sudden their blood sugars are down for like the next 24 hours. So exercise makes a big difference. Um, And a couple of things that we don't talk about enough, but sleep Mm -hmm. makes a big difference on insulin resistance. It affects your cortisol levels and cortisol is a hormone that affects insulin resistance um, quite significantly. And so getting your good seven to nine hours of restful sleep a night can improve your metabolic health, making sure you're not dealing with untreated sleep apnea can make a big difference and managing stress because stress raises your cortisol levels as well. Um, That can make a big difference in your ability to be sensitive to insulin, but also um, your chronic metabolic disease risk. And your, you know, I see a lot of people for obesity or overweight and they're so stressed and they're not sleeping and they're like, my weight isn't moving. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, of course it's not moving because you have these other hormonal factors playing a role that we need to target first. So a lot of my patients, we address sleep first more before we do anything else because it's hard to make diet changes and exercise changes if you aren't dealing with your best decision-making capacity without good sleep. I think this is so important. And as you said, for everybody, not just people who are insulin resistant or actively have diabetes, but for all of us to be healthier and prevent ourselves from getting insulin resistant because that becomes a cycle that is harder to break. And I love these ways you've told us to break it. So if I summarize it down, when you eat food, food has sugar in it. The sugar usually goes into your cells and is used as energy, but an insulin is what helps it get inside the cells. So what happens is that when you have a lot of sugar, you become insulin resistant. The insulin keeps rising higher and higher, trying to get the sugar into the cells and there's a mismatch. It's not happening. And so you get stuck in this pathway where you're cells and organs aren't using insulin the way it wants to, 
the body's raising insulin up, which is then telling your body to store everything as fat because it's worried that you're not going to get enough, right? So you get into this cycle and good ways to break it include sleep, number one, ways to mitigate stress so you can lower your cortisol levels, starting a more plant-focused diet, but essentially also eliminating processed foods, extra sugars, things like that, and exercise. Even moderate, low-impact exercise is important, right? It doesn't have to go be a hit or a high-intensity class. It can be something manageable like walking outside or on a on an elliptical. It doesn't have to be something really intense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I have a whole video on that because, you know, I, I feel like I've said it so many times that it's kind of, uh, I know it like the back of my hand and <laughs> I, my husband is a physician. And when I first explained insulin resistance to him, um, he was like, wait, 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 what, what say that again? And he stopped me like 15 times. And so I was like, I should put a video online about this so that when I tell people they can go back and listen to it because <laughs> it's more complex than I remember. Is the video on YouTube or is it on your it website? Is. Where do people it's find the video? Yeah, you can find it on my website. There's a patient resources section, but also on my YouTube channel. Okay. Last question before we kind of wrap it up. I've loved having you here is that I see a lot of patients who go to a different provider. So we'll say not a medical endocrinologist and not an RE and they'll have the most extensive hormone panel done I've ever seen. And they've paid out of pocket for it and cost them thousands of dollars And sometimes they're put on various supplements slash medications that are not evidence-based. And I never blame a person or a patient for doing this because I understand this is a sign that they're not getting what they needed from their current healthcare provider and they're searching for answers. And this was the pathway that felt the most comfortable for them. But I've seen some scary things done where patients you know, in premature ovarian failure were put on iodine drops and not estrogen like they needed and young girls with osteoporosis or amenorrhea not worked up appropriately. And so I think there's some caution, especially when you're spending thousands for that type of care. And I know you've seen things like that too. So are there red flags to people or things to look out for when it comes to who's managing your hormones and what that means? Yeah. So yes, I see this all the time. And I think it's it's a sad situation because people are looking for solutions and they're not getting the solutions that they need in these like five minute doctor PCP or mm-hmm. endocrinologist visits that um, are are the norm these days. And so um, I, I never think it's the patient's fault. It, I actually don't think it's the patient's fault at all. It's just they're looking for solutions. And what I would say is make sure that your doctor has an MD or DO behind their name and that they're board certified in the specialty that they are treating you for. That's key. That's key right there. So if you're looking for hormonal treatment, make sure they're an endocrinologist or an RE. And then also, you know, some of these people are acupuncturists, they're chiropractors, they're people who really don't have a prescribing authority. And so if somebody can't prescribe a medication, but they can sell you supplements because those aren't regulated, that's a huge red flag. So if somebody is diagnosing you with a medical condition and prescribing supplements that aren't sold at a pharmacy, you can buy them on Amazon 
and or you buy them from that clinic, you know, that's that's a red flag in in my book. Um, and you know, I've seen some of these tests done. They're so expensive. I mean, they're thousands and thousands of dollars. And um, there are people who have like non-degrees who are charging 10 times what I charge for, for my patients. And I think it's really hard in the world of social media to, to avoid that, but just kind of make sure that the, the, the doctor is board certified and, and is, a, is really a doctor. Um, in the way of thyroid, we see this a lot. And, you know, thyroid is hard because a lot of people feel that they're not getting the adequate, um, but people aren't hearing them when they're telling them about their issues. And, um, and that's a real concern. But the problem is we see a lot of patients end up in the hospital with things like atrial fibrillation or um, thyrotoxicosis or really bad life-threatening conditions from, from thyroid hormone mismanagement. And I see patients who are put on adrenal supplements oh, for yes. adrenal fatigue, which is not a real condition. And these adrenal supplements have like cow adrenal in them. And so they actually cause what we call iatrogenic adrenal insufficiency, um, which is actually can can be fatal if you if you stop the supplements. And so these aren't just like minor little supplements that are people think like supplements are natural, so they can't cause problems, but that's not the case. Supplements, they may be natural, like from a pig or a plant or something, but that doesn't mean that they're safe. And so you really want to be using a doctor who has a medical license (laughs) and who has some liability because there's a lot of people out there um, selling a lot of things that aren't safe. I think that's so important. And again, you and I both have the same perspective here. We understand that when patients are seeking alternative providers, they're just looking for good care and they haven't been able to get it in a traditional system. But you and I would both rather them come to us then, come to a board certified physician who spent most of her really good years in training and took lots of board exams and understands the difference. I like to use supplements. I like to use diet. I like to use medications, but I know when to use what, and I know what not to use. And I think that, and you're the same way. And I think that's so important because often if something sounds too good to be true, it likely is. If we could just give a little supplement to all these medical conditions, we would do it. It would be much easier, but it's really hard in the time of social media because often we get painted as the bad guy or somebody's experience with traditional medicine hasn't been so good. And so they group everybody together. So my kind of piece of advice is advocate for yourself and find that physician who's right for you because I promise we're out there, especially in the world of telemedicine. Yeah. And also, you know, sometimes I feel like these providers who are providing these, um, therapies and quotations, I feel like they actually don't know what they're doing. Like they don't, not in a way, I I mean, they're not trying to hurt you, but they don't necessarily know the difference. Exactly. They're not trying to hurt you and they don't know the potential toxicity of what they're prescribing. Because for example, like functional medicine 
it, it can be an online certificate where those providers who, who claim that they know more than your endocrinologist do an online training of 18 hours. Oh, and that's 18 it. hours. 18 hours. And that's like in comparison to my 8,000 hours of fellowship of clinical experience, multiple board exams, you know, it just doesn't even compare. The training doesn't even compare. And so it's impossible for them to know endocrinology and hormones in as much depth and detail to be prescribing the things that that you don't know. And um, someone smart once told me that the most dangerous thing for a physician is what you don't know that you don't know. And I think that a lot of these providers are in that boat. Oh, I totally agree with that. Arthi, I've loved having you on. I'll have to have you back on so we can dive into more of this some other time. But if you would please tell everybody where to find you if they want to be a patient and where they can find you online. Yeah, absolutely. So my website is www.sacomplete.com. I see patients virtually for all of Texas. Um, and you can find my videos, resources for patients on that website as well. And then you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Arthi Sangadu, so just my name. And then I also have a YouTube channel with lots of educational content on insulin resistance, thyroid, adrenals coming up, testosterone, all kinds of things. And it's just Dr. Arthi Sangadu there too. I love it. Everybody go to YouTube and follow Arthi so you can get more information about how your body works. Thank you, Arthi. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. I think we'll definitely have to have Arthi back on and talk more about things like testosterone, pituitary glands, menopause, and all of that stuff. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. You can find more fertility-centered YouTube videos at Natalie Crawford MD. And I am so thankful to have you here. Review, share, subscribe, all the things. Those things mean so much to me. Thanks, friends. Mm-hmm.